Welcome to the CG Pro Podcast. This is episode 36. We have Catherine Brillhart with us today. Uh, Catherine is an amazing virtual production supervisor coming from cinematography, and uh, she's worked on some incredible projects like Black Adam and Suicide Squad and Top Gun, Maverick, and it's a great pleasure to have Catherine here today. Uh, Catherine, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. Well, me too. Me too. Um, yeah, so to, to start with, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, how you got into filmmaking in the first place. Like, were, were there particularly any kind of early inspirations that, that you things you saw when you were a kid that made you interested in film? Like, how did, how did this kind of all start for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, growing up, my dad was a cinematographer and, you know, owned his own production company. So I had cameras in my hand growing up all the time. And to me, it was just sort of second nature to be expressing myself that way. And it became a passion of mine. And that was the art form that uh, I used to express myself the most. Um, and he was more in documentary or kind of corporate videos. So for him, his career took him all around the world. And so as a kid, I just saw cinematography as a way to see the world and to see, you know, light and people. And um, I don't know, that's sort of where the, the original passion came from. Oh, cool. So, so from your father's inspiration, that's, a, that's amazing. And did that encourage you to kind of experiment when you were a kid and make your own films? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, like, I remember when I was growing up, you know, the visual effects were already kind of at the very beginning of this early like CG sort of boom and revolution. So I just remember shooting as a kid and thinking, you know, what are, what are the missing pieces here? How do I get all these other elements that these big filmmakers have in the camera? Like, how are they shooting this? And, um, so even as a kid at home, having digital, you know, candy cams and things, I was playing with stop motion animation uh, and just, it was cool to have a digital camera and, and be learning that way instead of learning on film first, because you could just have hours of, of tape, you know, and uh, yeah. you know, put a shutter and what is light do if you do this? What happens if you use a, if you use a rotopolar? And I'll never forget my dad going like, it looks cool on a sunny day, but you know, wait for it to rain and then you know, see what it does to the raindrops on the cars. And I was just like enamored by filtration and like all these different elements of photography. So, yeah, we had to, we had somebody on a recent podcast. Peter Higuchi was talking about his his start in film and and saying it was with film, and he had to you know save up for a long time to buy a minute's worth of film. So yeah, definitely really interesting that you had that. Um, that ability to experiment a lot and try things yeah. a lot. Well, it was weird because, so there was a stigma at the time, you know, that digital was just broadcast and it was this nothing sort of medium. And that, you know, if you wanted to be a real artist or like a real filmmaker, you had to learn how to use film. And it was true at the time because, you know, the red cameras didn't come out and revolutionize or democratize digital cinema until 2008. So, um, I guess as a kid, I was just like, I'm gonna to go to film school and like 
learn like a real filmmaker's medium. So I, by the time I went to film school, it was really hard to find a school that had film as something that was being taught. And um, I was lucky enough to find like Ithaca College. And what I liked about their program is that they were super story driven. They wanted to, you know, have you, you, they created people who could think about philosophy and ideas and, you know, the stories of like why, the why and the process behind filmmaking. And they didn't want to own your work as a filmmaker. And they just had Bolex, a bunch of Bolexes for everybody and some A10 LTRs if you were a senior, you know, and um, you could really mess around and, and play. And so it was interesting to be in a film school where most people that I was learning with had never touched a digital camera or a film camera. They just had a still photography camera. And I didn't realize until I went to school how unique my experience was, like having had an entire lifetime in a digital photography and then trying to reverse apply that to film and then coming back out into the film industry and having the film industry transition into digital. So mm. it was just kind of a weird, like forward, backward experience going between digital and film for me. Or both. What, what did you learn from having to use film, having already used digital? What did that kind of teach you? It taught me why all of these controls and buttons were on the camera. It really, mm. I got to see mechanically what a shutter was. I got to be in a dark room and understand why Photoshop had a burn tool, mm. you know, or um, little things like that, or I understood more tactilely why cinematographers would do wedge tests or camera tests because um, sometimes the only way to really know uh, what the look would be would be to test it out first on little strips of film and you know come to the director and share those tests so it was just really interesting to see where some of the tra traditions and language was coming from and um, yeah like I, mean, I it's weird because i think editing and post-production and color are all kind of part of that same conversation um but it so it was interesting it's always been interesting to me to see how um you know, if, if this DP is using filtration, if, you know, you can substitute that with color, with the colorist. I, and I guess what I'm trying to say is like, they're just, when you start understanding how many different types of processes there are, it gets exciting as a filmmaker because you realize that all these different recipes uh, for how, how you work um, affect the final product, so. Right, yeah, it's interesting. So seeing where, where, why things are called what they're called the fact that it's coming from a process that's dead now that doesn't really exist anymore but it's being simulated in digital just because everyone's so used to it and the fact that it's then sticks in an environment where sometimes isn't necessary but but it does introduce um a, a technique or a look or an aesthetic that that people like and we're kind of always trying to i feel like in digital trying to get back to that look that we got with film of, with all the imperfections that came with that process and we're trying to get them back and put them into the digital process oh yeah totally i mean it's a it's a medium it's like you know um visually when i try to describe it it's like looking at crayon versus watercolor versus colored pencil versus oil paint like these are all just different textures you know that you're applying with those mediums um and 
something that people don't think about either really are how, how film and digital, the equipment and the tools that you use affect the teamwork and the process for how you're working. So it's been fascinating, you know, to get to um, kind of go through digital cinematography, cinematography film, um, exploring post-visual effects, diving into VR and virtual production, and then still see how, um, you know, directors and artists who want to continue to use filmmaking with some, you know, virtual production techniques such as like LED wall workflows, you know, it's fascinating to see how you're combining three different types of professional workflows in that one scenario. Um, but it's good to have had the experience with all of them because you can take things that are important and that work and then guide others to leave those other things that don't work behind. Right. Yeah, this is this uh, moment in time represents, as you said, a collision of multiple disciplines and, and industries. And um, I know that that's the, the it's necessary as a virtual production supervisor to, to have been through all of those, to have been through visual effects, to have been through filmmaking, cinematography, and, um, and virtual production, the new, the new parts of that and the old parts of that, because um, that is, it's kind of an, an addition to a visual effects supervisor, because there's an, another layer on top of that, which was the combination of those industries previously. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, um, it's exciting that there is room in the, you know, I guess the head of department circle for a new role. Um, and I think one of the unique things about this new role is that it's influenced by, um, uh, the past and that, you know, there's definitely a department that exists for those kind of workflows, depending on how they scale. Um, but it's interesting, I guess what I'm trying to get to is that um, for so long, for like almost 30 or 40 years, visual effects supervisors have had to carry this like burden and do the extra labor of, um, you know, like kind of supporting other department heads as they prep to kind of teach them about their workflows and like uh, that they are an equal in that creative process. Um, and it's been quite a journey to see visual effects supervisors even earned that equal status and collaboration over the years. Um, so as like a newcomer head of department, even in that circle, what's fascinating is that a virtual production supervisor is simultaneously helping a few different departments prep. So you're like in service to, you're supporting other departments because a lot of your team and your artists and the workflows that you're managing are in support of art department and supporting the DP prepping and their gaffer prepping and their whoever's managing the department prepping. And then you're also working with visual effects to make sure that, um, you know, all of your workflows make sense with how they would like to work on set and have the in-camera visual effects flow downstream to their teams if there's going to be any kind of pipeline work. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the day, you're still, in addition to that, reporting to the director. You know, they're your boss, essentially. And you're making sure that their vision is whole with the technology and the processes that you're going to set 
when you work. So, you know, I guess if you thought visual effects supervising was difficult, or DPing was difficult, you know, VP supervising brings a whole different level of complexity to that. Right, and it's it's very important. Without without it, you a bunch of departments that can do their piece, but not understand how it comes together. So, um, yeah, it's it's, it's really cool to talk about it. It's a conversation that doesn't get had all that often. I think um, what you you talked a little bit already about what a virtual production supervisor is. Um, how 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 would you say? you become one or what was your route to becoming one um well um i think it helps i think it definitely helps that as a cinematographer i've always taken worked into taking leadership roles and so i know what it takes to be a department head i know what that means on set and i know what that means to prep and i know how to work with the director um, and get to know multiple directors um, and I think the benefit of working in post visual effects was definitely having a much deeper understanding of the post pipeline and all of the groups that touched the image after um, you know production is finished. And I think that being able to see that scope um, when I'm planning a workflow helped me pivot into virtual production supervision because. Um, you know, I can, I can communicate with the heads of departments that really need to have a path cleared for them to do their best artwork. Um, and I would say, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's just sort of understanding the technology. I, I understand like the onset technology and where everything, where the shots are going. And I can also kind of communicate with a visual effects supervisor and really understand what they're saying when they talk about how they like to collect elements on set um, during that part of the process and where and how they would like them organized um, and tracked to get to the next phase. And I think visual effects coordinating really helped um, you know, prepare me for that. So Right. Getting to yeah. see the the insides of the visual effects process, you you get to understand what it takes to do that, how how what you do on set really affects that process and that's, a, that's something which is has always been a you know, passion of mine trying to get being being on in the visual effects side most of my career wanting to get good good results from a film set and sometimes being able to influence that but sometimes not and just having to deal with what you got given you know that really really helps i was wanted to have more presence on set from people people on set sometimes i've i know challenging for them to have other people that affect their workflow on set and tell them to stop because we've got to do something else. Like how, how do you, um, how, how has that been for you in terms of uh, being able to be on a set and be able to have a lot of influence in a, in such a dynamic environment? Um, well, you know, I think every, every set is different. Every group of people that you work with is different. So the personalities, the way the project is set up, um, you know, from a budget standpoint or you know, just the logistics of how a set is run can impact all of that. So I think it's important to kind of um, do your best to, I feel like being a very practical listener, really understanding what people need, being able to anticipate, 
getting to know somebody as deeply as you can, as quickly as you can, so you can anticipate their needs. Because the way I'd like to work is to make sure that people see me as a collaborator who's kind of helping remove obstacles and working with my team to remove as many creative obstacles as we can. Um, And... um, So what, what kind of, when do you get involved typically in, in the process? Do you, um, are you there from the, the very beginning, from the beginning of pre-production? When, when's the kind of the right time for a virtual production supervisor to start getting involved in production? Um, well, ideally, especially if you're planning to have a client-side you know, virtual production supervisor, um, it would be during the very early, like, bidding process, same as a visual effects supervisor. That way you can all kind of work together. Um, because uh, everybody's budget is affected by all the choices that are made from that point forward. And it's been very challenging having been pulled onto projects that, um, you know, we're already nine months into a conversation around virtual production that, you know, you end up, I've been on those projects and sometimes you can't dig the production out of the hole or like rabbit hole that they've gone down fast enough for them to stay on track with the project. So it'd be nice to be on when you're in the bidding phase. That way if there's a custom build or like custom workflow that we'd wanna do, whether it's motion capture, visualization integration into a workflow, um, you know, like I, like composite, like depth compositing or LED screen and camera visual effects, we're kind of all prepping toward that goal. Then it gives me enough, the ability to build a team, whether it's individuals or a robust team of different vendors that makes sense to take on certain parts of uh, the project, um, audition those vendors. And then I feel like once you're, once you start executing bad, um, assuming you're in an LED workflow or as soon as you start kind of triggering hires and payment for artists on the project toward a creative goal, that's already pretty late in the process as far as work. Because I would say virtual production department is sort of in production as soon as any artists are hired and are working. So it might be a couple months or weeks prep Self and a producer getting ourselves organized around what the goal of the project is and then employing you know the artists together but once that team's working virtual production's in production and we're supporting the production and we're making sure that we're clearing the path for everyone um so you know that's something also to consider that you know those artists are already you know kind of working and being pulled in right yeah no that's still i know that there's been a lot of uh education around this subject already around like people saying things like virtual production is production and mm-hmm. fix it in pre and these kinds of things where we're, we're hinting at the fact that that a lot of this work is being done before the shoot or almost all of it mm-hmm. in the case of led even though we know sometimes things are being still done in post after that um that i think still people feel like it's the it's a visual effects department and it's post. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it's interesting how that uh, it's still a perception, I think, of it. Um, 
is there is there anything um that you would say to like uh, people considering taking on a virtual production project particularly a, a producer that's thinking of all the different ways that they could accomplish a project all the different ways they could do it do it the way we've always done it before do it practically do it with visual effects have a go at, at virtual production I, th I feel like some there's um some trepidation out there from the from people having done things a certain way traditionally you know it, it's something that's and visual effects is still a fairly new industry effectively but there is a, a sense that this is how it's done with visual effects but now we're coming and saying okay this here's a another tool we're adding in to the process um there there can be some fear around new things i think for producers um is there do you have any uh any thoughts on you know, how how to um a, approach that say you're a producer and you're thinking about doing this um how would you how would you go about it yeah i mean um the, i always ask these questions up front you know what problem are we trying to solve by applying this technology um is it to enhance the creative vision is it just to solve a logistics problem um i think recently there's been like a lot of really important marketing around some of the positive sides of you know certain virtual production techniques where you can bring a location to you if you need to, if there's like a pandemic or a reason that you can't travel crew, um, those are certainly positive. You know, in my own experimentation um, using LED wall workflows um, and certain techniques on my own, um, you know, there've been benefits to avoiding night shoots, uh, just mm. any logistical things like that. So um, maybe one of the first places to start with any of the, these techniques are, you know, what logistics can these techniques simplify on the shoot? Um, you know, what creative challenges can we solve? Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, I think it's a, it's a tool. I think with any every new innovation, people have this tendency to think like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna use this to do everything from now on. I saw that with VR, where yeah. VR came about, and we're like, we're all gonna be looking at Windows desktop in VR. And you know, people tried that, and most people didn't really want it, want to do everything in VR. Do a little bit in VR, yes, and it still exists. But there's this kind of big big um, wave of, of hype at the beginning of, of something and then it kind of settles into how it's practically useful for for people's workflows and i think it's it's really good to to hear you say um to talk about that approach to think about it from a what what are we trying to accomplish um first of all and yeah. then I, I used to have this conversation a lot in visual effects like okay this is what you want to do and i would often get in trouble for in meetings about it because i was in the cg department and i would be there talking people out of cg and saying you should do it practically because that would probably be better and yeah. um in in this case you're saying the same thing like let's take it back to first principles what's the challenge we're trying to solve yeah. um and i i feel like a lot of people have this perception as well of, of virtual production that it's that its purpose is to save money and i know that it has more um usefulness than that it actually can actually enable you to do other th things that aren't possible in other ways um but there is that perception that it's supposed to be for saving you money on your budget um do you, do you have yeah. any thoughts on that 
Um, well, it's definitely not a silver bullet. And yeah. I think it's important to kind of recognize just the history of where some of these techniques came from too. I mean, mo motion capture has been developed inside the visual effects community and been applied by amazing you know, supervisors like Dan Lemon on Planet of the Apes and you know, earlier, but those were big films that kind of drove innovation in those areas further. Um, and visualization, I mean, visualization kind of came out of computer graphics meets animation for larger directors who you know, wanted to be able to see they wanted to be able to make their film before they made their film. Like a lot of these techniques came out of visual effects um, adjacent teams or visual effects teams that needed to innovate to keep up with a director wanting to solve really specific creative problems because they were directors that had a budget big enough that they could decide or have more agency in what uh, process they were using, you know? Probably, like, you know, as artists, that's kind of an homage to just any art form, but any style of um, making artists, you know, taking tools and techniques that anybody could use and then doing something really different with them. And so um, the moment that we're in right now with virtual production is more of a, like, consumer, prosumer boom, if that makes sense. So even though it's still expensive and sort of out of the reach out of you know, most people's reach, um, there has been enough development for larger directors and studios with bigger budgets that um, there's kind of more of a market now for more people to try these techniques. Um, and I think that even if you were to like try to relate this back to like the DSLR movement or like the digital revolution and 2008, where more like the cinematographers flooded the market because everyone could buy a camera and have an editing system. Um, you know, and Unreal Engine's doing something similar now with their game engine, but the democratization in virtual production is really more, um, it seems to be more in a space for, you know, students and independent filmmakers who are interested in making animated films that have physical elements incorporated them. So like 2022, by we're now in December, you know, if you, there are all these ifs, but you know, if you can afford a computer that has a certain graphics card, you can download the engine for free and incorporate, like I could, it's kind of, it's kind of feels like it's democratized visual effects for the cinematographer. Like I'm excited because right. as, a, as a DP, who's always wanted to work at Pixar or something, you know, I can take up an iPad on my Red Rock rig hook it into unreal engine um with like maybe a, a team of international artists that i'm working with on a project and i can be shooting something that they're animating and i mean it's just a totally different way of collaborating so i think in that respect it's sort of democratized but um but i guess all that to say um if, if there's so many there's so many people that go through film production and whether it's college or just the school of life in production and they've never intersect with visual effects. And I think that's totally nuts. <laughs> but my experience has been, I've had to pull visual effects into my life um, because 
I can see a bigger picture for how you know the most innovative directors and cinematographers that I know use that and decide to talk about it or not. Um, and I think those how they make their work is very inspiring. And, and so I think we're in um, or hopefully we're in a moment where it's more obvious to those in production um, that pulling visual effects techniques into their work is, there's, hopefully this is the point of no return where you kind of have to do it and you can't ignore it anymore or not even ignore it, but you have to be exposed to it. Um, and I think that's exciting. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I'm, I, I, uh run school teaching people this all day long so no very, it's definitely very familiar subject to me and have been lucky to work on some some movies um pioneering some of the techniques the um the thing that i i see a lot is the um filmmakers are having to learn now learn or well, having to but being invited to learn more about computer graphics and the same in reverse because people in visual effects didn't necessarily get much of an opportunity to go on set before. If, if you're the visual effects supervisor, mm -hmm. or maybe um, on the um, a CG supervisor, sometimes in general, visual effects people have been in a dark room somewhere, completely disconnected from the process, and not really able to understand like cinematography, what makes a good shot, what what is filmmaking, um, because they get the, there's your shot, and you have to make that look good, but you don't get any choice around seeing how it was made or choosing to make it differently so both sides i feel like are, uh being drawn closer together and i think that's that we have so much to learn from each other in that respect i think yeah no 100 percent. i definitely agree with you there um so yeah i mean hopefully this just these conversations just like crack it all open do you see more um more cinematographers wanting to say learn Unreal Engine for to, to help their own process than individually, as well as them joining it in a, in a production. Um, do you see people wanting to take it on as uh, themselves? Yeah, I've seen like I've seen a range of different you know reactions to it. I think that some some individuals are very excited because you know they, maybe they want to take on more of the previs or the, the visualization. Um, which is an interesting discussion. I mean, I guess it, even if you, depending on the scale of the project, that could, that just is a different job description if you totally bonk you down. But um, yeah, you have more agency maybe in visualization or understanding that process so that when you are involved in those conversations, um, you feel like you, have, you can communicate more clearly with an artist or something. Um, I guess, it's so funny because virtual production is so large. Um, I think there's a real rush on, from a cinematographer's perspective, on the LED wall workflows, and you know, understanding um, how to work with lighting and like a virtual gaffer in those spaces. Um, and it's it's an interesting. It's oh, it's going to be an interesting ride to see kind of how it all plays out in whether virtual production influences um, hiring practices in physical production. Because there's definitely the an idealism around how we talk about it sometimes where we're like, 
you know, the DP will come on and then they'll hire a gaffer and they'll hire their crew. But in prep, you know, they've spent this time working with the, the VAD team and the, the visualization team. And I see those relationships happening and production is letting, you know, a DP come on a little bit earlier to have those conversations. Um, but I haven't seen productions pull on DPs quite early enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because every team is different, but sometimes the way that crewing works on the physical production side, it's not as stable as crewing on a visual effects team, right? Like if you're on a visual effects team, you pretty much have the job until the gig's over, you know, for six months or 10 months or two years or however long you're working at that studio. But in production, people kind of change out a lot. And it's just a totally different way of working because everyone in that space is generally freelance, right? So sometimes you could have um, a gaffer start working with your VAD team and your visualization team. Um, and they're genuinely on the project, but because they got a call from another UPM or DP or project that uh, they absolutely need to take. Now they've jumped from this part away from your project to another project and have a new offer, you know, uh, or the same thing could it, or in a similar sense, like, um, you know, you could have some key people in the camera department really not be hired until the week before or the two weeks before the shoot because they are on another project that ends right before this project. So I think there's just a lot of logistics in how um, all these relationships will kind of you know, come together when producers kind of start understanding more about um, you know, how to line projects up so that the production crew can be more consistent uh, in that prep process. I think some of those practices will probably need to be massaged a little mm. bit um, as well. Because um, I think, yeah, I think the ideal is possible. I just think it was some of the realities that we face in how things are organized right now. It's feeling pretty clunky. Right. I guess it's still, still figuring itself out, still relatively new. Um, yeah. We have we have some questions that have come in from the audience. Um, so let me go through a few of those. Um, somebody here is asking, what does the role of virtual production supervisor mean when it's client side? Um, that's a great question. Um, so I would say typically, um, you're the I would say you're the overall head of the department. So you're working with the director to understand their vision for what they'd like to achieve with any of the workflows that are considered virtual production um, on that project and making sure that you've crewed the team, um, pull the right people together, whether it's individual artists or vendors. A lot of the time, if you have a client side virtual production suit, the implication is that um, you would have multiple vendors or a core team with still subsequent vendors that you hired. Um, because similar, like, like for example, in visual effects, there's a, there are projects that require a client-side visual effects suit and 
um, there's some that don't, you know, like there are certain directors who have great relationships with visual effects supervisors at a house like Teaneg or Pixamundo or, you know, let a fill in the blank. And they want to work with a supervisor that works at a company that has an established team. And then, you know, that supervisor could help manage workflows with other vendors. That's one way that, you know, that can work. Sort of same with virtual production supervision. Um, and other times, the way that they like to structure the team is to just have a core client side team, like a supervisor and producer, perhaps somebody else, an artist or two, uh, or some coordination support on the client side um, to help manage maybe multiple vendors or the large team that you have. Just depends how you set that up, but um, it's client facing. So uh, that means that you're making sure that the director is happy and the production feels like uh, you're staying on budget and you're just taking care of that whole department and the logistics and clearing the path for everybody. Got it. Yeah, so could, you can have two, can you have two virtual production supervisors, one on the vendor side and one on the client side, like you can with visual effects? Yeah, totally. Definitely. Cool. Um, yeah. Um, and another question here, um, what's the biggest obstacle you faced in virtual production and how did you overcome it? It sounds like an interview question. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, okay. Uh, well, they're all different types of problems on set, but here's a kind of a fun one that we ran into this summer. I was on an episodic uh, series and we were shooting film and so one of the challenges in protecting the color workflow um, was making sure that we had a digital reference camera on set with us for the duration of the time the film camera was there, just so that we, would, we could like check things and that sort of thing. Um, but, um, I guess where I was going with this was more like camera tracking. So the digital reference camera wasn't tracked and it was kind of always there. Um, but I, I bring that up because the, we had intended to shoot with a single, you know, film camera and a single fresh drum. That was the intention. That's how we planned everything. Those were the conversations kind of all the way up until the day of shooting. Um, but we had scheduled some 2D work on the volume before the 3D work. And it sort of inspired the camera team and the director to uh, bring three cameras to start when we shot the film. <laughs> so, so, because when you're shooting 2D, we didn't, we weren't tracking it. It was easy, relatively easy, easy to do. So all that set up to say, um, we'd planned in advance and had a couple different stipe camera tracking cans, you know, like the, the camera yep. pieces, um, so that we could have a few backups, one maybe on the digital reference camera and one on the film camera and then a spare. So that was the logic for why we had three contract systems. But the director and DP show up with three film cameras. And so one of the most challenging things to kind of think through on the fly with the team was like, 
and with the director was just like, okay, how, how would you like to work with us? And he's like, what can we do? And we're kind of learning in the, a little bit in the moment as we're working with her. And so we thought, well, if you give us like 10, 15 minutes to set up um, each of our Skype cameras on each of your film cameras, then we can, you can say, I'd like the fresh drum to be on this camera. You'll only always have one fresh drum, but at least you can tell us which camera you'd like it to be and that change will go over pretty quickly. Right. And um, so that became, that was a tricky thing to kind of solve in the moment. And it, you know, the, the, the complicated things around that are like, um, um, oh man, the, uh, it's only it's only at a 90 degree angle but we need it to be at 45 degrees you know good thing we were experimenting in the background and we had a fabricator you know on set who was ready and had some pieces that they were just making so it's it was challenging because a lot of the things that we were just anticipating and experimenting with and saying well what if they ask for this and what if they ask for that they usually did and so um it was kind of fun to be able to solve that problem but um, challenging in the moment because you have the pressure of, you know, everyone spending like $2,000 a second yes. <laughs> on those projects. And you're like, how many seconds does it take to figure this out? Um, yeah, the patience yeah. graph, of that, <laughs> yeah. it, it goes very quickly down and there's a cliff at the end. Yeah. 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 Like that wasn't something that happened in like an hour. That was like a, a five to 10 minute blur of like figuring that out. So. Yeah. Oh, really interesting. So expect the unexpected. Yes. Um, another question someone's asking, um, is there any gems you can offer about leadership, especially the different approach between the older and younger generations in visual effects? Yeah, sure. Um, um, it's, I think that, um, I'll speak from like an LED workflow perspective because there, I have some examples of how agile workflows, visual effect workflows, and union sort of production workflow kind of came together and had some friction. Um, I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's totally bizarre. So I guess from like a leadership perspective, the team, the teams that I've worked with, um, where we're, where we're bringing agile workflows to a set, um, mean that there's just, there's a lot more negotiating that I need to do in advance and kind of day to day um, to understand the time that our team needs to prep and work. And then I, I haven't, I've done work where I've told, I've worked with our team and said like, these are kind of the rules that a union goes by, you know, like expect this, expect somebody to say this, you know, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of, um, I feel like trying to teach others through the best that you can, how to work with you and how to work with your team, setting boundaries that are clear for what you need and just sticking to your guns and being honest about that. Um, and then letting other people see work. Like I think people were really impressed by our team when they saw us, uh, people in production, like I had a UPM that was helping us that had never worked in visual effects 
or in Agile. And he, when he saw our team throw up a whiteboard and I ran a meeting where, you know, everyone got to say, we were just trying to brainstorm, like, what are all the things that could come up? What are the things that we need to solve? And he saw the intensity and the participation of all the engineers and artists on the team contributing to that list. And then he saw everybody take ownership and say, well, put my name by that, put my name by that. We can fix that by this date. And then he saw us divide up that whiteboard and we, in about three or four hours, had developed a plan for what we were gonna do. And because it's agile, every day we would just update the whiteboard with things that we needed to do. People had never seen that way of working on a film set because the film set is kind of the opposite. It's like, you know, okay team. Like, you know your this role. This is what we're gonna now, do. Yeah, this is what we're gonna do. do. Here's the gear list, do it. Like, I shouldn't have to tell you twice. So, yep. um, so it was interesting for them to kind of see how film people work and for anybody who was with us on set to kind of see how we worked um, in from a visual effects perspective. I really felt like I had to use a lot of visual effects producing skills to get us through the prep time and the visualization and the bad meetings and to negotiate that with production and the director. It's like, imagine a team that has, it's like they forget what working post visual effects is like. So you kind of have to say, we're gonna have reviews, it's gonna be on a schedule. And I know it's uncanny to have a meet a director's approval on things once or twice a week, but we're going to need that buy-in from the director and the production team to allow that in their schedule so that they can work with us and make sure that their creative vision is gonna be on screen. Um, and one nugget from set that I thought was really important was it's been amazing to be a DP and to come in and have to work adjacent to a department because, you know, I'm on a set thinking like, I love camera, I'm part of camera and to, you know, see the stone wall, like we are camera, we don't talk to anybody who's not in our department. You know, it's like very interesting. So it was good to be able to understand the politics of a camera team and mm -hmm. know that, you know, it's not always the DP that's running the department. Uh, they certainly are, they are the head, they are the boss of the team, but sometimes it's like a B camera operator or a first assistant camera that is helping hire the people that you see on set. And they're running the department meeting, they're doing all the prep work, they're making sure the right cameras are there, they're taking lists as the DP is talking about what they need with the director and making sure that that's kind of running and happening and that every assistant has their marching orders. And so I think that's not very visible to most people because you have to be mentored in the um, meritocracy of cinema to like have had that explained, you know, to you. But um, so some of the problems and the friction that I solve would be making sure that the person, whoever's running the department knows that I'm a key leader on set, or if I have um, a technical supervisor that's doing like that volume supervision or something, that they know that that's a point person. And then I have to teach my point people how to talk to the other people. So there's a moment at the beginning of a shoot day for all meeting each other for the first time where I'm very involved and I say like, okay, you need to meet this person and you guys are gonna work together. And this is the person you talk to about wrangling cameras. And 
this person can't be slowed down. So even though it sounds like they're telling you what to do, they are, and you should do what they say. And I approve that. And so I think knowing, just knowing that you as a leader can smooth some friction out by giving approvals for like how things can operate around and who talks to who, making sure that people know how to report an issue up to you. I, I've even had to train the camera department to know whether they should come to me with an issue or come to somebody else on the team. Um, you know, it's yeah. like, it's hard to put it all into one answer, but yeah, it's complicated. No, it's great. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've highlighted there as well how, how leadership is perceived generally as being top down, but leadership goes both ways. You have to have people from the floor leading up and telling the people the, people, the generals don't, don't necessarily know what's going on. They need they need leadership to, to bubble up as well. And you, basically, in that sense, everybody on in any environment is a leader and should be should feel that they're a leader. They may not get to make the decisions, but you're saying that leadership is everybody essentially yeah definitely yeah very some some pearls of wisdom there thank you yeah um and this so much of this is interesting to me how so much of this stuff because movie sets are such a pressure cooker they're so like dynamic yeah. and like you said mm -hmm. they know thousands of dollars a second in some instances um that you had you had there's a lot of it's a lot of uh pressure or just a lot of need to make decisions quickly and to, to to leadership becomes almost one of i think one of the most important qualities in in those environments so it's a, yeah. it's a really important subject well and it's funny because this is making me think i didn't answer the second half of a question from earlier about what you know a virtual production supervisor does like you know when you i think i answered the prep part of it and uh, you know all that but on set you're up there with the director with that core group of creatives helping make decisions or having them tell you what they need of you and your team and so on set uh you know you are running your team and making sure that they understand and are prepared for you're setting the tone for how your team is going to function on set and how they're going to work with other team players so that's another part of that of yeah. as well. right yeah you're you're a head of department you're essentially a, a key creative in in that sense you're up there with uh animation supervisor visual effects supervisor dp director those the the it's a, it's a key role yeah yeah and typically i guess it depends on you know what type of virtual production you're working in but you would always have depending on what specialties, like your, your lead mocap or your lead facial capture person, you know, it's, you always have making sure that your leads are communicating with the right people. And sometimes that is the director, but I think also working with everyone to know what the timing is for that in certain contexts, whether it's like a prep session or on set is really important. Is there, is there any way that, um, how, how do you think, what would you would you advise people if they want to learn some of these kind of more soft skills or leadership skills? How would yeah. how do you how do you get good at that? <laughs> there a school or you have to just go get on a set and figure it out? Yeah, well, I mean, it's like there's no there's no one 
answer. I think it's going to be custom for everybody because everybody has a different passion and a different entry point into it. But when it comes to leadership, no matter what piece of this you're passionate about, um, I th it's really about putting yourself in that role. And I think that's the big catch 22 of all of it is like, you know, how do I, how do I do that? So my path has been um, working in independent projects in, you know, with filmmakers who give me that opportunity to have a leadership position and then kind of building my resume and building my experience database that way. Um, you know, there could be somebody else who like just has a connection that can put them in uh, you know, a bigger budget project faster. Um, and that's how some, some people do it. But the basics of leadership are, it's kind of like building patience or any other discipline. You just have to be patient for it. To be a leader, you have to be able to put yourself in those roles and then um, just reflect, give yourself time to reflect about what worked, what didn't work. I think being open to real feedback is important. Um, and it's harder to get, I'd say like as a leader, like that's where developing like self-awareness or, or putting people around you that can be really honest with you is super important. Um, because sometimes when you're in a leadership position, people don't want to tell you exactly how they feel because feel, they feel like it's putting their job in jeopardy or something. But um, if you're able to get feedback, that's, that's good honest feedback. Like, hey, like, people weren't happy with how you handled this. You know, like even being able to find out that information can just help you on the next project or help mend relationships moving on to the next thing. Um, or, you know, like somebody goes, oh, well, you did that really well, or I felt so empowered when this happened. Um, that's getting that feedback and then just practicing. Right. Yeah, more experiential and, and uh, yeah, being uh, being able to find, um, there's not, it's, it's fairly new industry, so I guess finding, finding mentors is a little more tricky than certain areas that have been around for longer, but... I guess finding finding people that have been down the path before you and asking their advice, but yeah. good old old school things like that. Totally. Um, somebody else is asking a question here, saying, "How do you track elements for virtual production?" Ooh, that's is... a good, that's a great question. Um, well, it, you know, it's funny because it's like it's a little bit different for um, each slice you know you're organizing motion capture slightly different way than you would organize um like other data but it's all related because a lot of that data is so hinged on time code um and that in some chain lock components to time code um still shot driven yeah it's very shot driven exactly so it, this it also kind of do, how you organize it kind of depends on at what point in the process you're collecting that data um, but if you're on set, then it's scene take shot, like you're saying. And um, <laughs> this is where, like, user experience, like, things can get kind of pricey because, um, or they might not in the future because somebody will develop something for this. Um, 
you know, if you're probably on more of an independent set with a team of people that don't have tools that they're custom engineered for collecting metadata, you're probably doing it the traditional visual effects way, which is like coordinator by hand as best as possible. Google Sheets. <laughs> yeah, Google Sheets. <laughs> Listen, I still we still use Google Sheets in some of the like more USD driven work, metadata collection work things that I've worked with, but I've also had the benefit of working with teams that have put in enough tool development into um, like their own licensed piece of software that has taken a lot of the feedback of, you know, from myself and, you know, others on those projects for like what categories of data they need to send. And they've been able to aggregate that data from Unreal, from the tracking, from the camera, um, and have that kind of all be pulled in to not only an Excel spreadsheet automatically, but you know, organized in folder structure on a drive. So that the ideal thing is like when you're done with the shoot, uh, maybe your production manager or coordinator um, is doing a, a couple hours or an hour of like cleanup work just to make sure that the computer caught everything and that we have a narrative for what happened with the data. But beyond that, it's pretty much ready to go right after the shoot. So that's like my favorite way of packaging data. And uh, most studios don't really have that feature right now. Like that's something that you have to come in with or have figured out, um, which is why it's also nice to have a virtual production suit because they can scope that out with the company that you're working with and figure out you know, what's proprietary or, hey, I've got a connection with somebody who has like a licensed piece of software for this. Um, that can help us, um, but yeah, it's totally important. But right now, it's like a luxury user experience to be able to have automated data collected that way. Right. Yeah. The sort of utopian ideal of having everything in shot grid, something like that. Like. Yeah, it's possible. I've seen yeah. it. Right. But... Yeah. It surprises me how many times it ends up in Google Sheets, though, on like a three hundred million dollar movie. <laughs> like, we're yeah. doing it on pieces yeah. of paper, or like. Some of the Lion King, we had a wallpapered an entire 50 foot wall with wallpaper that was made of whiteboard material and everything was up there. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not everything, obviously, but like a lot of it was run in, in that way, which is super old school, but it was just very practical and very, you know, good, good to do it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can have multiple people update a Google Sheet. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's got, it's got built in functionality that works. Yeah. Um, got a couple more questions. So, uh, somebody asking what aspects of virtual production did you use on Black Adam, if you're allowed to talk about it? Yeah, sure. I can, I can talk about it generally. So, um, they, I would say they used a bunch of different types of techniques. I was excited because it was almost every technique that I'd ever wanted to see, like facial capture, um, motion capture. I got to run, you know, over a month long shoot. Um, just collecting um, different actions from sequences. That was really cool. Um, and we did some volume work. We, in Atlanta, we had a custom volume built that was pretty big. It's like a cylinder volume. And um, it was mostly used for interactive lighting. And I would say that the 3D, like real time, LED work that we did 
in Los Angeles at Island Studios that was intended more as interactive lighting, hoping that we could get more final pixel, you know, out of those shots. Um, and what was exciting also about working on that project was using Island's LED human volumetric capture rig, which I don't know how many out there are familiar with like photogrammetry and you know Metastage and what Christina Heller's doing, but it was essentially the concept, conceptually, the arrangement of cameras that like, you know, a Metastage would have where you have uh, really nice high resolution cameras kind of in a globe around a subject, but outside and built into the walls of this rig, instead of being a green screen rig, it was an LED, uh, screen, LED panel um, aid, essentially. And it also, you know, it had, um, what do you call it, a treadmill inside so you could get walking shots, and it had interactive DMX lighting around the ring. So I'd say that the majority of work that we did was intended for interactive lighting. And I'm not, I still need to find out, like, you know, if we had some final shots that slipped in. I highly doubt it, but the coolest thing was getting all of the, um, the lighting right. And the unusual thing about that project was that the pandemic gave them an extra like nine months to uh, pre-visualize everything and do world building. So by the time we were shooting, it really was the final lighting in the CG world that we were gonna use. So from that sense, it felt like a proper visual effects workflow that was totally you know, figured out. And I'd say that credit definitely goes to Bill Wessenhofer who thought through all of that. I mean, the complexity of how he was thinking through all of those shots from conception and visualization through his process in production into post uh, was pretty incredible. So um, I hope that helps. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm sort of part engineer still can't help thinking about things in that way. So uh, for, for me personally, definitely it's always that side of things is really interesting, just how, how things get made. It's also the making of books of what got me into the industry, look, looking at the making of Jurassic Park and how they did what they did then, which was a breakthrough movie. But we're seeing more of those um, types of movies happen today where new things are being figured out. We're not, we're, there is no precedent for a lot of this stuff. So it's really, really interesting to hear about it. Yeah, I mean, it was cool to have, um, you know, like flying was like 90% of that movie, right? Flying, and he's, it's, and we were lucky because he didn't have like a full head of hair. So the cool thing that you could do inside of that rig for any other cinematographers who have kind of played with this, you know, if you have an array that's a ring you can make it look like you're doing a camera move because all the cameras are gen locked and you can kind of switch, you know, between cameras as you're going through the things of film. So imagine having a globe and being able to kind of create a camera move in an extremely high resolution around a subject that's also perfectly captured synced 3D data with photographic texture projection. And like for anybody else who geeks over, out over that stuff, you're just kind of like, whoa, you're getting all that information at once. Unfortunately, like data processing on that scale and getting the you know images 
all the process damages is always going to be a pretty expensive thing, which is why a feature like Black Adam would have to use that technique. But the fact that they can and they did was super cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it sort of dovetails a, a little bit with an, another question that we got, um, which might be our last one uh, for today. Um, someone says on a, on a recent DNEG presentation today, the, they talked about how they used volumetric capture very regularly. Um, this person saying, um, could you speak to any volumetric capture um, workflows that you've used in uh, film or TV? Yeah, I mean, Volumetric capture has been used for so long. It's like almost one of it's one of those old school like virtual production techniques that just is a visual effects technique, really, that um, just has a new like life given to it because you know companies like Epic Games who bought reality capture and some of these softwares that drove the development of that you know art form are like more popular now and they're more accessible like on a cell phone. Um, but yeah, like volumetric capture data is used all the time, like all the time in features, you know, it's perfect. It's like reference data for creating a digi-double. Um, you can use it for de-aging a subject or aging a subject. Um, yeah, like environment work, it's used for, it's used a ton of different ways. Um, and, you know, it, like it's hard to talk about it almost without like specific examples also, but, you know, like I thought Black Adam was a cool, like amazing use case for it because um, even, I would say even three years ago, the engineering of the technology that I used on this show was just, a what if. So kind of the holy grail in photogrammetry and volumetric capture from a visual effects standpoint is like how photo real can you get? How many pores can you get? Like the holy grail is can you capture subsurface in the skin? You know, mm. and like with the teams that I was working on at Gentle Giant, especially, like we were talking about how far can you push infrared, you know, cameras with volumetric capture and like I was saying before with Black Adam, the more information that you can sync together using time code um, in one capture, the better, like the higher density you know, data that you have and the more you can do with it. So sometimes volumetric capture data is just referenced. Sometimes it makes it in as like you know, a final texture projection. Um, it's something that could turn into a 3D asset for a game engine build that you're making or a visual effects build. It could just be that you have artists making a 3D gray box of something and you need to have a two and a half D solution. And so you want to texture project, you know, very realistic geometry or like images, textures basically on um, 3D geometry. And that's even a technique used right now in VR because the displays aren't that great, I guess maybe Meta came out with a competitive headset now, a month ago. But, you know, in VR right now, it's a huge um, money saver and like millisecond, like frame rate saver in a game engine, being able to just have basic 3D geometry that's very low poly 
and having a 2D, you know, very photorealistic, like projected image on it. Yeah. So just yeah. so many different use cases for it. Very cool stuff. Yeah. Um, I got, uh, okay, one quick other question which came in um, before we wrap. So uh, someone says, as a VP supervisor, are you the head of the VAD or part of the VFX department? Ooh. Um, I am typically the head of my own department, which is virtual production supervisor. So it means that I could be overseeing VAD ultimately. If Here's two ways I'll break it down. If I have built my own team that's just a group of artists, I would have a VAD lead or like a CG supervisor who's running my VAD department. But they're ultimately going to have sign off, like a quality sign off from myself, you know, before we go into shoot, into shooting. Or we're going to have sessions with a visual effects supervisor or production designer to weigh in on the quality or a gap or to weigh in the lighting. Um, so I would say that they're just somebody that is a department head on their team, the same way like a head of visualization or visualization supervisor would be another department lead on my team. Um, so I hope that makes sense. Like on a visual effects team, it's sort of similar where you have a CG supervisor, you know, you could have a lighting supervisor, compositing supervisor, um, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, it definitely does to me. I was bad lead on Lion King, so I know I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yes. Hopefully, it does to the to the audience too. I'm sure. I'm sure that it does. Um, yeah. So we 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 covered a lot a lot of ground. Um, is there anything you're you're excited about? Uh, what are you excited about in the future of virtual production? Ooh. Well, I I'm just very excited that um, about tools being more accessible and continuing to be. Um, and I'm also excited because there's so much interest in it. I mean, I think that, you know, having experienced the whole like VR kind of explosion and having it go away, mostly because they didn't have the platform to display it, you know, kind of got stuck in itself, that was, frustrating, but it's really cool that a lot of the same practices and principles are kind of living on through virtual production. Um, and that, you know, both artists in production and artists in visual effects you know, come together, work more closely, um, and have more interactive experience. So yeah, it's, it's important that, uh, well, the, I think this evolving as we use it more you know, it's forcing more people to try and make things better and workflows better and um, the the engineers out there to figure out solutions to problems and for people to care about it and uh, yeah it's it's an exciting time and i'm excited about it too um i also want to ask you if you have any uh anything you want to share any links or <clears throat> places where people can follow you or any of that kind of stuff Ooh, well i definitely and if you'd like to stay in touch, um, LinkedIn is a great way to be in touch with me. Um, I do have a personal website that just it mostly focuses on independent products that I'm, you know, working on, um, which is also searchable online. But it's CatherineLeesBrookhart.com. 
All right, we'll share that link as well. Um, are you still making your own films? Yes, I am. Um, I shot, I had the ability to fly back from Atlanta while shooting, while Black Adam was shooting to finish shooting a short film that I had started working on in 2021. And that's currently in post. So hoping that, you know, during this holiday season, there's a little bit more time to focus in on that before everything picks up again. Does it involve virtual production? Yes, this film, Camille, <laughs> yes, it's a virtual production-driven independent project. And, you know, we made this, I had 14 weeks to write it and do all the prep and then two days to shoot the project. So it's something that I've been, you know, doing kind of preparing presentations for because I, I want to use the project as a way to um, share learnings with other filmmakers and, um, you know, like help trigger creative ideas, you know, for those who think that they have limitations, even with a, a tiny volume or no budget. Fantastic. Well, I'm excited. Um, maybe we could uh, do something to, to highlight that when it's um, when it's ready. Maybe we can do a, a little feature on it or something if you're up for that. Oh, that'd be great. That would be awesome. I'd love that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, lo I love big budget Hollywood stuff, but I also really care about uh, independent filmmaking and that we, we've had some people go through the school who've, who've made a student project that's gone on. There was one person recently, Byron Chow, who, who made a, a project through the class, which is eight weeks long, and then used that as a pitch to, to do a Kickstarter. He then raised enough money. It was about 25K, so a pretty small budget in filmmaking terms, but he made a, a virtual production movie and did it in an LED volume, a small one, an affordable one, but actually it was it's really cool to see how um, independent filmmaking is has access to this too because i think everybody just thinks of the mandalorian and it's like that's not me because i don't have that much money but um yeah i'd love to i'd love to uh highlight your work uh from that side of things as well oh yeah definitely and there are other techniques to talk about too in that space that you know depending on your relationship with visual effects as an independent filmmaker could be viable as well, like using in-cam camera system or, um, you know, uh, like the Moses in-camera tracking system that, you know, does live compositing with green screen. So yeah, there are tons of different ways to get these techniques onto your project. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to another session sometime. We can talk about that as well. Um, but yeah, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a, a pleasure talking with you and I appreciate your time. Okay, thanks for having me. You bet. Of course. Um, thank you also to our, all our listeners today. Thanks for tuning in and asking great questions. Um, this has been episode 36 with Catherine Brillhart. And in another couple of weeks, we'll be back with another great guest. Um, if you enjoyed what you heard, we can follow us at Become CG Pro. Dot com uh, if you're interested in any of the courses that we do and find out more information there um but yeah thank you to catherine and to everybody for today's great podcast see you all soon